First Samuel chapter 14, it was my original intent in studying today to cover the whole chapter. Um, I don't think we're going to do that uh, tonight, though, uh, just seeing uh, the time. Uh, it's a sweet time of worship. And so I want to look at the first 15 verses where we see really a picture of faith. John Corson made a statement once that really moved my heart. It was a statement that has really stuck with me through over probably 10 years since the first time that I heard it. He said, I think that every one of us from time to time should attempt something so big that if God is not in it, it is doomed to fail. I like that. Attempting something so big that the arm of the flesh can't drive it. The arm of the flesh can't produce it. That when that thing is over, when it's seen, when it's evident what has taken place, that there's only one explanation for it. That you have to step back and say to yourself and say to those around, this was a God thing. This was something that God did, something that God produced. Well, in our passage tonight, we see such a situation in the life of Jonathan, Saul's son. We've been looking at Saul. We've been seeing how, you know, Saul was anointed king. And then it just seems like from there, it's just one downward spiral after another. One mistake after another, and, and that really at the center of all of it is pride. Pride in Saul's life. Well, Jonathan is the one bright spot in Saul's life. It's his son. And his son is a radical man of faith. He's a radical man of God. We'll see him as we go through this, this, uh, book of 1st Samuel that, that he is one who, as we'll see tonight, exercises great faith in the Lord, great trust in the Lord. We'll, we'll also see that he's one of the, the best examples of a friend in all of the Bible. There's much that we can learn from this young man, Jonathan. And we want to consider this step of faith in his life tonight. Let's begin with verse verse 1 of chapter 14. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine's garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migran, and the people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side, and the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sine. And the front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. 
Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, and it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. It was Max Lucado who wrote in the beginning of one of his books, my favorite book of his, He Still Moves Stones. He wrote these words. These are not just Sunday school stories. They are not romantic fables or somewhere over the rainbow illusions. They are historic moments in which a real God met real people who were in a, in real pain. In these stories, we are reminded that the God who spoke still speaks, the God who came still comes, and he comes into your world and he comes to do what you can't. He comes to move stones that you can't budge. He still moves stones. You know, I love that quote there from Max Lucado, and it's exactly what we see here in this story. The army of Israel that at one time was 3,000 men has now been reduced down to 600. Out of discouragement, out of fear, a great host, and really just kind of out of being fed up with King Saul, most of the army has deserted. They have gone their way. And on the Philistine side, oh, their army numbers at least 30,000. So the odds are quite against them. But it's at this point in time that Jonathan, when the rest of the army, including King Saul, are just kind of sitting back, Jonathan decides, you know, I think God might want to do something. And if you're taking notes, we're going to look at some points about faith tonight in looking at this story in Jonathan. And the first point that I would have you to jot down is that the eye of faith sees what the natural eye cannot. The eye of faith sees what the natural eye can't see. And that's what we see here with Jonathan, that Jonathan comes to this place where he's recognizing and he's saying, hey, God might want to do something here. Now, I want you to notice there in verse one that it tells us that Jonathan, as he was thinking up this idea that he didn't tell his father. Now, why is that? Why didn't he tell his father? Well, I don't think he was trying to be deceitful here. But I think what was happening in Jonathan's heart is that he knew that his father wouldn't approve. He knew that his father would quench his faith in this very endeavor where Jonathan is willing to say, hey, let's just see what God might want to do. Why do we know that? Well, notice it tells us here in verse 2 that Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree. Jonathan is in this place where he's like seeking. He's wondering, hey, what does God want to do here? What's Saul doing? He's sitting under the pomegranate tree. And I think the reason why the author tells us that Saul was camped out under the pomegranate tree is that the pomegranate was a highly prized fruit in the ancient world. It was a luxury food. It wasn't a a staple of the diet. It was a luxury item. 
And so this detail that the Holy Spirit inspires Samuel here to jot down concerning Saul is one that I think really tells us something about Saul's lifestyle at this point. He's been king for over two years, and his focus is no longer on fulfilling the will of God for the kingdom of Israel, but but instead, what we see Saul doing here is he's concentrating on comfort. And you know what? Comfort is one thing that can be used in our lives to quench faith. Comfort is one thing that can be used in your life and my life to quench faith. When we find ourselves getting in that mode where we're just comfortable, we're just kind of really comfortable in that place where we are at. Comfort can quench faith. You see, it's easy for someone who is comfortable, who doesn't want their comfort level shaken up, who doesn't want to be shaken out of their comfort zone to quench somebody else's zeal. Somebody who might get a grand idea and a sense on their heart that, hey, maybe God wants to do this and the comfort will say, nah, you know, he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to move in that way. I mean, you know, because they, they don't want to have their world rocked. They don't want to have their comfort level shaken. Chuck Swindoll tells this story about a meeting that Walt Disney had with his advisory board. He said that Walt Disney would occasionally present some unbelievable, extensive dream that he was entertaining, and almost without exception, the members of his board would gulp, they would blink, they would stare back at him in disbelief, resisting even the thought of such a thing. Now, here's what's interesting. Unless every member of that board resisted the idea, Disney usually wouldn't pursue it. He'd hear these guys going, no way, you can't do that. That's impossible. That's crazy. And he'd go, that's exactly what I want to do. But you see, so many people who maybe have that heart of a visionary can be so stifled by those who only want to see with the natural eye who only want to see what the natural eye can see. And I want to encourage you, who are older believers here, because I think that oftentimes it can be those of us who have been around a while who can be the most susceptible to this type of thing. We've walked with the Lord. We've watched him do things. We do things. We kind of have an idea from studying the word and what he's done in our own lives that, hey, I kind of know how God works. You ever find yourself thinking in that way? And then some younger believer comes along and they're like, you know, I've got this crazy idea. What do you think? And we can be the first to just kind of shoot it down because it seems a little out there. It seems a little bit different. You know, one of the reasons I love to bring and, and love when the Lord brings new people to come and serve in our body is that they come into this place, they come into our ministry, they come into what we're doing, and they see things from a much different perspective than those of us who have been here for 10 or 15 years or so. And sometimes, you know, they'll come up with some idea that it's like, you know, God, we never thought of that. And I love that. 
I love when the Lord works in that way. They bring fresh vision. They bring fresh perspective because it's easy for us who have been around a while to get comfortable and get used to our routines and not be so open to some new perspective. So Saul is sitting here in comfort. He's not knowing, he doesn't know what to do. His army is depleted, but that's not where his son's at. His son is seeking. His son is wondering. His son is interested in seeing what God might want to do. And so he says to his armor bearer, let's just go see. Let's go check it out. So point number one, the eye of faith sees what the natural eye cannot see. I remember I was thinking about it today. The very first missions trip that I ever went on. I think it was really the first missions trip that our church here at Calvary Chapel Vista ever took. There were six of us that went with Pastor Brian over to Yugoslavia back in around 1989, 1990, quite a long time ago. And we went over there and just God did some amazing things. But we went over there with no concept whatsoever of what we were going to be doing or what God wanted to do. It was very much a Jonathan and his armor bearer type of thing. Let's just go see. And after spending three days in this little tiny village called Pachir, where there was, you know, no one under the age of 80 and, you know, no people, be just, just chickens and, and uh, you know, horses and that type of thing. We finally arrive in this city, Subatitsa, and there's people and they're out in the streets, you know, and we're walking around. And, and, and I remember looking at Howard and we're looking at this big open square and we're thinking, this is it. This is the place, man. We need to come and just set up and just see what God might want to do. And so after actually being discouraged by the pastor of the church uh, that we, Howard and the guys did music at that night and Brian preached and, and I sat and watched and, and was wondering, why am I here? You know, we went out that night out into the street and Howard got his electric guitar got a little pig nose amp and he started to play and people just boom gathered. You see, back then, it's not so much this way now, but that back then they love, I mean, they still love American music, but they, they had, they didn't ever hear any of it live, you know, up front firsthand. And there we were, there Howard was, you know, with his long hair, like he had in the picture, you know, on Sunday and he starts playing and, and they start making requests, you know, can you play Hendrix? And I know it was the first time in Howard's life that he was glad that he knew some Jimi Hendrix, you know, I mean, he starts playing and the people are just gathering and they're, and, and it's amazing what's happening and taking place. As a result of that trip, a group of guys got saved. A couple of weeks later, I went back with Mike Harris, who's now the pa- one of the uh, the pastor of one of the Calvaries up in Huntington Beach, and and God just did this amazing thing. 
And really, I know in my heart, and I think Howard could probably say the, the same thing, that every single mission trip that I've ever been on after that has been judged by that one. I mean, it was just an amazing time. And God did a similar thing in, in Baia, Hungary on that very same trip. It was an amazing time. Had a similar time like that in Kapishvar, Hungary, years later as we took a team of, of high schoolers. But it's something exciting in a person's life, in a Christian's life, when they just, in, in a sense, responding or, or just kind of wondering, what does God maybe want to do that they take that type of a step of faith? Now, I don't know what sparked Jonathan's faith in this way. I'm sure that he knew history. Maybe he thought about uh, Shamgar in Judges chapter 3, verse 31, where we read that Shamgar killed 600 Philistines with a sharp stick. And perhaps he thought, you know, if God can do that with Shamgar, maybe he can do that with me. He doesn't need a whole army. My father and the guys, they're just sitting around, you know, Lord, here I am. I'm open. I'm available. Maybe he thought about Gideon and his 300 going up against the 300,000 or so of the Midianites. Maybe he thought about Samson. I don't know what it was that if it was any of those stories that inspired him. But listen, I do know this, that this story, stories like this one are meant to inspire us. They are meant to inspire us to be people who are willing to take those types of steps of faith. To say to the Lord, hey, let Let's just see what God might want to do. There was an old lady named Nancy Jones. She lived in a small Midwestern community and she had the notoriety of being the oldest resident in that town. Well, one day she died and the editor of the local newspaper wanted to print a little, you know, caption commemorating Mrs. Jones' life and her death, but he couldn't find anything really about her. She kind of led a real quiet life and a real simple life. And and um, he kind of interviewed some people. All he could find out was that she was a nice person. And so he was frustrated by this, went back to the office. And he thought, you know, I, there's got to be more to this woman's life than the fact that she was just a nice person. So he 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 grabbed his only available sports writer or only available reporter who happened to be the sports writer and said, I'm going to put you on this case. Go find out what you can find out about this lady. And we need to have something in the paper tomorrow to kind of commemorate her life. Well, the guy went out, tried to interview some more people, and he really struck out too. He didn't do very well. So he's thinking, okay, got to come up with something. And so this is what he wrote. This was in the paper commemorating her life. Here lies the bones of Nancy Jones. For her life held no terrors. She lived an old maid. She died an old maid. No hits, no runs, and no errors. <laughs> that was her life. You know, I would rather, I like that story for this reason. Because it illustrates, I think, what none of us want to be. That we don't want to have an epitaph that at the end of our life that basically reads, we didn't do anything. 
that basically reads, you know, that we lived a very, you know, quiet, very reserved, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Protected kind of life. You see, I would rather take some steps of faith and make some mistakes, but have some opportunity where I could say, like Jonathan's saying here, hey, let's just see what God might want to do. Let's just see how he might want to work. And so I want to encourage you to be open to take steps of faith, to step out and see what God might want to do, how he might want to work. I remember John Morton coming to me a little over a year ago and basically saying, Rob, you've been teaching me now for a couple years and I'm getting fat, getting fat spiritually. I'm sitting here, you know, I'm serving, I'm involved in things, but I want a challenge. And so I've been praying and I feel like God's telling me, go to Illinois, go back home and just see what I might want to do. And that's what he went and did. And you know, God wants to work in that type of way. Jonathan knew this truth about God, that he didn't need a whole army. Jonathan believed in a big God that he could save through many or he could save through few. And I want you to note where Jonathan's emphasis was that he had little faith in himself, but he had great faith in the Lord. His attitude wasn't, I can win a great victory with God's help, but rather it was one that God can win a great victory through even me. Through even me. F.B. Meyer put it this way. He had the smallest possible faith in himself and the greatest possible faith in God. And he aspired, Jonathan did. In a humble way, he aspired to be a humble vehicle through which God might work through his grace. And God is so blessed by that type of heart. So point number one, the eye of faith sees what the natural eye cannot see. Saul was sitting because he couldn't see, he couldn't perceive that God might want to do something even with 600, let alone two. And so he's sitting, doing nothing. His son is seeking. Point number two, it's good in looking to, to, for efforts to step out in faith to seek confirmation. And we see that Jonathan seeks two types here. Personal and circumstantial. Notice verse 7. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. Here's the personal confirmation. He goes to somebody close to him and says, Hey, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? Somebody that knows him. Somebody that knows his heart. And he hears these words. Hey, do all that is in your heart go. I'm with you according to your heart. And these are beautiful words for a man of vision to hear. Do all that is in your heart. I'm with you. Sink or swim. I'm going to be right by your side. Oh, that's a great thing. If you want to be a person of faith, if you want to be a person of vision, it's a great thing when you have somebody or a group of people around you who know your heart, who know your walk with the Lord, who can say, hey, we're behind you on this. We're behind you. 
Now, I think that if the armor bearer would have said here, you know what? I don't think that that's such a a good idea. I think Jonathan would have respected that. These guys, it was a very tight relationship that an armor bearer would have with the person whose armor he was bearing. He had to be willing to give up his life for that person. It was a close relationship that they would have. But here this guy says, look, I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to go for it. I remember back when we were living in Oregon. And our little church there had a decision to make in looking for some a new facility to move out of the school we are meeting in and move into this uh, building. And part of the lease agreement that we were signing that was going to be, you know, several years long, there was a time when they were seeking to negotiate it in such a way that all of the guys in our church in leadership, myself and the six or so guys that were in leadership with me, that we would be personally liable for uh, the lease if the church folded. If something happened that we would be personally liable to cover the uh, remainder of the building. And, and I remember, I mean, it was like a heavy thing. It was a heavy thing to contemplate, to take on this, you know, personal, in a sense, investment in in this. And I remember we had just moved into a, our very first home, my wife and I. And I remember thinking, you know, we, we could lose our house. You know, if God isn't in this, we, we could lose our house on the on this thing. And I remember my wife saying to me, she said, look, she said, I trust. I trust your relationship with the Lord. If you guys think that this is what God wants to do, if this is what you think, how God is leading, I'm with you. Go for it. I don't care about the house. And I was like, man, I mean, that was all I needed to hear. It was all I needed to hear to take that step and just go, okay, let's go. Let's jump off. You know, let's go for it. Because my best friend was behind me all the way in that particular endeavor. It's such a great thing. So Jonathan seeks here this personal confirmation. And I want to say, though, that I think that there was a certain degree of trust here, that Jonathan's armor bearer trusted his relationship with the Lord, that he wasn't blindly following him, but he knew that Jonathan was wise. He knew that he sought the Lord. And that type of trust only comes, listen, through time and experience. You know, sometimes here at the church, we have people who have wanted to go out, felt felt impressed by the Lord that maybe, you know, he wanted them to go to a certain place and go start a work. But the problem was, this has happened a few times, maybe five times in the last eight years or so, actually probably about three times in the last eight years, that that particular individual is somebody who really in, in our minds hasn't been proven. And what I mean by that is it isn't somebody that that we've seen kind of, you know, proven in the ministry here, that we've seen them, you know, serving and we've seen their gifts and we've been able to identify. Yes, I, I see the calling on your life. And and I think if you if you follow the scripture, if you look at the scripture, when God's calling somebody, there's there's four things that we see in the word that point to that person's calling. 
that, that God's hand is upon an individual. First of all, the, the man will point to himself. We, we see there in First uh, Timothy chapter 3, where Paul says there, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good thing. So first of all, there's a desire welling up in, in the heart of the individual where he's like, you know, I feel like that this is what God's doing and, and he's leading me into the ministry. And so first of all, there's that call. There's that sign, that desire within the heart. Secondly, is the, the sheep point to the person. Jesus said in John chapter 10, speaking of himself, that the, the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. And I think when God is raising up somebody, the sheep who are around him recognize that call. They recognize, hey, God's doing something with this guy. When this guy shares, it's like, you know, I want to listen. You know, there's something there that God's doing in that person's life. The sheep point to that individual. Also, the Holy Spirit, thirdly, points to the individual. The fruit of the Spirit is Galatians chapter 5 is going to be evident in that person's life. That, that those marks of love that are laid out there are going to be seen in that individual. And then finally, the leadership of the, the, the fellowship points to the man because Paul talks about there in first Timothy chapter three, as you continue on about not laying hands on anybody that's a novice. So there's this this mark of a of, of approving that those in that the leadership of that uh, congregation, they they see, hey, you know, we recognize, yeah, God's hand is on this guy. Well, there have been some over the years. There's been a few who we weren't sure about that we hadn't had the time. Or they hadn't gotten real involved. And so we hadn't had the time to really see, does God have his hand upon them? And so as they would go out, we would basically share this with them. You know, you know, we're not telling you not to go. If you feel like, you know, the, the Lord's leading you in that way, great, go for it. And we're going to watch and see. And if, if we see, you know, that, that God's confirming this, then we'll get behind it. 100%. But we want to see, you know, that that this is really the Lord. And so there's been a few times where that's been the case, but so much more so we love it when in, in a situation like with a John Morton, a L.A. Nelson, a Dave Anderson, a John Randall, a Jim Stewart, some of these guys that that, that we just we'd watched for years around here, them minister and serve and grow and suddenly, you know, just bearing witness with that call and being able to say, we're behind you. We're going to send you. We're behind you one 100%. And I think there's a mark. There's something to be said about that, being in a place where, where in, when steps of faith are going to be taken, that there's that confirmation that can be given from those who know your walk with the Lord, who know your heart. And that's what Jonathan is seeking here. The second thing, though, we see is Jonathan's wisdom is that he also is seeking for circumstantial confirmation. Verse eight, it says, then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign to us. 
This will be our sign. So he says, let's go up and we're going to, you know, hide in the rocks and we'll jump out and go nanny, 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 or, you know, something like that. They're going to jump out and say, hey, you know, here we are. And he says, if they say, if they say to us, hey, you guys wait right there, we're going to come up. Then Jonathan's like, hey, we know God's not in this. But if they tell us to come to them, then we're going to know. So he lays out this circumstantial situation. Let's see. Let's let's test the waters and see if God is in this thing. He's laying out a fleece here. And you know what? It's okay to do that. But I want to note this. I want you to note this is very different from the fleece that Gideon in the book of Judges lays out. You see, with Gideon, God came to Gideon and said, I'm choosing you and I'm going to use you to overthrow the enemy. So go. And Gideon lacks faith. And he's like, Lord, I I just really need to know if this is you. So can we do a little test? And he wants to take a, a, a... piece of fur and put it outside and say, okay, tomorrow have the ground be wet and the fur dry. And then I'll know that it's you. And God says, okay, I'll do that for you, Gideon. It's like he meets him in his lack of faith. And I think this just really shows the the graciousness of God. Instead of saying, look, I'm giving you a chance here to be a hero. You know, I'm giving you a chance to be used by me. You don't want to do it. I'll go to the next loser somewhere else. You know, God doesn't do that. He goes, okay, you're struggling here, Gideon. Here's what I'll do. And he, and he does it. You know, the ground's wet and the fur's dry. And Gideon says, one more time, God. One more time. This time, let the fur be wet and the ground dry. And so God does that. As well, this is different, though, because Jonathan doesn't have any direct word here from God. God hasn't said, hey, I want you and your armor bearer to go over and and attack the this garrison of the Philistines. Jonathan's just got this wild idea to do something that's completely irrational, completely that makes no sense whatsoever. And, and he's like, you know, but let's just make sure that God's behind this. And so we'll lay out this circumstantial test here and see if God might confirm this thing. We, we're doing the same thing right now as a church, or we've been doing this with our property situation. You know, first of all, it was as we were investigating it, it was a situation where we were looking for confirmation in, let's see if the owner will sell it to us. Because we had been told that he didn't want to. And in fact, it was a situation where the, uh, you know, he, he flat out said to us, I don't even want to talk to you guys about this. So don't bug me about this. A couple weeks went by, though, and I get a call actually from the builder who's the partner of the owner. And he says, can you guys come down and meet with me at my office? And I probably shared this with you before, but forgive me uh, for repeating myself. But, you know, we go to the office. We're driving down there all the way down into El Cajon, and we're sitting there, you know, trying to strategize. What can we do to convince this guy, you know, to, to sell this thing to us? And we go into the, the office. We sit down in this big conference room. We're waiting for him to come in. He comes walking in. And before we say a word, he just says, okay, I just got to tell you where I'm at on this whole situation. 
I've asked you here for a reason. You see, I've been watching your church's struggle for a couple years now in trying to, you know, find a piece of property. I, I, I paid attention to all the struggles and the difficulty, you know, that you went with on the thing down there, you know, at Mason Road. And I did not want to sell you this land over there off of Melrose because, you know, that's the last industrial piece of property, you know, in that part of Vista. That's my bread and butter. That's what I do. I build that type of thing. But he says, here's the problem. He says, God's keeping me up at night. You know, I can't sleep. And like God's speaking to my heart and he's saying, you have a piece of property that will work perfect for this church. So what are you doing? And we're like, just like our jaws drop, you know, and, and, and he's like, so here's the deal, you know, here's what I want to do. He lays out all the terms. I mean, just all this stuff. And Jeff Dorman's with me. Jeff does this a lot for different, you know, Calvary chapels and, you know, working deals like this. And, and I'm, I'm like, an idiot when it comes to this type of thing. So I don't really know what's going on. And, and after it's all over, we get in the car and Jeff looks at me and he says, do you understand what just happened? And I'm like, no, you know, and, and he's like, you know, I've never seen anything happen like this before. I mean, this was so the Lord. So that was confirmation number one. Then the next confirmation was, okay, let's, you know, take the steps, let's go further. And then we had to go and meet with all the city council members that, you know, we were told, no, they don't want a church there. But then as we met with them, suddenly we're hearing from all of them, oh, yeah, we'd love this. Yeah, we would, we're, we would, we would go for this. Yeah, this is, this is great. And so that was confirmation number two. And now we're in the midst of confirmation number three. And that's all the logistical report type of things that they make you do um, in order to build a project like this. And we're in the midst of this. We will be in the midst of this for probably another nine months or so. Um, so that's why we don't have a whole lot of details to tell you at the moment because we're in the midst of filing reports and doing all of that type of stuff. But we've been seeing that type of confirmation. That's what Jonathan is doing here. We pick it up in verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. And then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me. I love this for the Lord. I mean, I, I think he's just like getting elated here. You know, I got like big smiles on his face, you know, and he's like, come up after me for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan's like far out. Let's go for it. And so Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within a half acre of land. And there was now here's where God comes in. There was a trembling in the camp, in the field and among the people. And the garrison of the raiders also trembled and the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. God just shakes the earth. In this particular moment. Now we ended our study last week. 
by making note of in first Peter chapter five, verse eight, that our enemy, Satan, goes about to and fro throughout the earth like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. He walks about, Satan does, looking for those he can take advantage of, that he's, those he can discourage, those he can devour. But then we also noted that in Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, it says that the eyes of the Lord also go to and fro, but his eyes are going to and fro seeking those that he may empower, those that he may show himself strong on behalf of, those whose hearts are loyal to him. And God found on this day such a heart in Jonathan. And God meets Jonathan's faith with an earthquake and brings a great victory. The Bible teacher G.K. Chesterton used to say that the Christian life is not so much tried and left wanting, but rather found difficult and left untried. And I think there's truth to that, especially in those who want to have a Christian existence that is marked by comfortable, being comfortable. That it's a life that's left, found difficult and left untried. There could have been this particular day, 101 reasons for Jonathan and his armor bearer to say to themselves why they shouldn't go do this. But there was only one reason, one reason that would lead them to go and do it. And it was this. Our God's a big God. He doesn't need a bunch. He can save with many or he can save with few. So the next thing that we see here, point number three, is once the confirmation is given, Jonathan goes for it boldly. Boldly, not timidly, but boldly. He's willing to take a venture of faith and God responds by giving him the victory. Number four, we see here that faith is contagious. Jonathan's actions are going to inspire the rest of the people of Israel to go for it. The rest of the people of Israel to venture out. To step out boldly, believing and knowing that God is on their side. And that's what ventures of faith do. You know, it was two years ago now that I challenged the guys in our youth ministry to plan an outreach. I kind of came to a point where I just was not wanting to be the only voice of vision for the church. And feeling like these guys were much more in tune with youth than I am. I'm getting old. I said, look, plan something. You guys pray. You guys seek the Lord. You guys come up with something. And... What's going to happen down at the pier on Sunday night is basically the byproduct of that particular time. And I can say that that in, in a large way, it's been. The Jonathan has been, in a sense, Phil McKay, as Phil kind of took the bulls by the horn and said, OK, let's see what God might want to do. And started to do the legwork and started to 
you know, investigate and started to, to, to make some plans and to present some ideas and say, you know what, I've been, you know, praying and seeking the Lord and looking at this. And, and this is kind of what I feel like we should do. And it was like, great, cool. Let's get behind it. Now, I will say this. And Phil's going to, he's going to love that I'm going to say this because it's going to mean job security. But uh, <laughs> if this thing Sunday turns out to be a total and complete flop, nothing happens, people don't show up, people don't get saved, you know, that doesn't matter to me. Because in his heart, He's at a place where he's saying like Jonathan, let's just go see what God might want to do. Let's just go see how he might want to work. And I love that. I love that type of thing. I love to take ventures of faith. And I love to watch people who want to take ventures of faith, who are willing to just say, hey, let's just see. Let's just go for it. Let's just do something kind of crazy. And they seek that confirmation and they, they get a sense, yeah, it, man, God's in this. Now, we've received a lot of confirmation that we believe that God is in this and he's going to work and he's going to do a neat thing. But for Phil's sake, you're okay, buddy. <laughs> but you know, I, I just, I love that. And I'm excited to see what the Lord is going to do. Jonathan is a great example for us in this. And I pray that all of us here tonight, that our hearts would maybe be stirred a little bit in some way to say, you know what, let's just see what, what God might want to do at my work or in your neighborhood or with some relatives or, or maybe, you know, in, in, in shaking up your heart to say that he's just going to, you know, wants to take you and do something way out of the ordinary. And I'll tell you this. Those are the most exciting moments, the most exciting times that you will ever have in your Christian life. So let's be that. Let's stand together. And if you would, let's join hands. And I'm going to ask Phil to come up and lead us in prayer for the outreach this weekend. Let's pray. Father, we do just um, come before you tonight, Lord, and we're so encouraged, Lord, by your word tonight. Lord, we, we love to see that story, Lord, of Jonathan, who, Lord, had the littlest amount of faith in himself, but the greatest amount of faith in you, Lord. And we pray tonight, Lord, that we as a church would join Jonathan, Lord, in, in, in that endeavor, Lord, to, to believe you, Lord, and to... Um, to know and to realize that the faithfulness comes from you. So, Lord, we ask tonight for your anointing, Lord, on Sunday evening. God, when, um, Lord, just we pray that many people would come before you, Lord, and, and be at that threshold, Lord, of, of choosing who they're going to serve, Lord. And we pray that you would stay the enemy, Lord, that you would hold him back, Lord, and that you would allow them to make that choice for themselves, Lord, of whom they will serve. And Lord, um, God, we like Jonathan, Lord, we, we, we want to see you do an amazing work, Father. Our heart is just to see you 
pour out your spirit, Lord, and to do something that just blows all of our minds, Lord. And Father, we know that, um, Lord, in the flesh, we can strive and struggle and do so many, just we can wear ourselves out, Lord. And yet it will do nothing for eternity. But Father, just one, one second of your Holy Spirit's anointing, Lord, can change a heart for eternity. So we ask right now, Lord, for your anointing, Lord. We pray, Lord, as a body, unified together, Lord, that you would do a great work in the hearts of the people, Lord. And Father, we're going to be in the middle of a dark place, Lord, one of the darkest, place in, tar- darkest places in, um, in, in the city there, Lord. And we pray that your light would shine so brightly, Lord. And, um, and Father, we just we look forward to what you're going to do. Like Jonathan, Lord, our hearts are just... We're just stoked, Lord. We're just excited about you, Lord, and about what you've, you've done and are going to do. So, Lord, we just, um, we just pray for your hand to be upon that night. Um, would you just bless, bless everything, Lord? Be with the bands, Lord. Just uh, be with Pastor Rob as he shares the gospel that night. Anoint his lips, Lord. And, Father, we know that as your word goes forth, you're going to use it, Lord, to... Um, Lord, just to do amazing things. So we just commit that night into your hands, Lord. It's in your hands that we leave it. The mighty living God, the one who delivered Israel with one man. Father, we just praise you and we thank you tonight. And we ask you to go before us, Lord. Bless your name, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.